We, uh, are you guys ready to start? <laughs> of course you are. Been waiting on me. Uh, trying to get uh, our screens up tonight, which we really needed. Uh, I had some things in there to read, but uh, it's uh, not functioning correctly, so we will do without it. We uh, always do anyway, so that's okay. Anyway, we're, uh, we're getting ready to uh, kind of start a, a new series here. Uh, on Sunday morning is going to be called Reformation Sunday all across the world. And a lot of people don't know that, but uh, that, we're having a special day on that. So remember, you know, we have the, the, the food and special uh, after after church. Uh, it'll be a special day that we have. And uh, next year will be the 500th anniversary uh, of uh, the Reformation. There will be all sorts of things going on all that year and uh, all across this nation and, and the world. Um, what we're going to be dealing with um, is something that kind of definitely coincides with the uh, Reformation. So we get to start here on Tuesday night. Uh, it's going to be a kind of a study of the Westminster Confession uh, or the Colonial Congregational Confession, which we have. Uh, it's brand new that um, uh, Zach Whitson has been putting together. I'm not so sure if he's finished yet or not. Every time I think he's done, then he's got another edition or a little question on it. Uh, 1689 Confession we, we have used down through the years too. Uh, Reformation Day, though, is uh, going back and talking about what uh, the Reformation uh, was and is. It continues and goes on, uh, reforming always. But the Reformation was about... Um, getting out of the dark ages. It, it was taking in the five solas. For instance, uh, Scripture alone. My t-shirt has it right here so I can just cheat and read it right here. So, uh, sola Scriptura. Uh, that is one of the reasons, uh, the biggest reason why the Reformation started. It was about the Word of God. And of course the next one is Sola Fide. It's by faith alone. It's not faith and the church. It's not Scripture plus the tradition and the church magisteriums. Um, it's, it's Scripture alone. It is faith alone. It is grace alone. Gratia. Sola Gratia. Uh, it's not grace plus works. So see the, the salvation-based works uh, by the Roman Catholic Church uh, embraced all the ones that we have here, but it wasn't sola. It, it was um, the church, what the church said. And another one is sola Christus. It's by Christ alone. And uh, then, of course, the sola Deo Gloria. Uh, glory to God alone, not, not the church and not the Pope, not anybody else. So if there wouldn't have been a Protestant Reformation, guess where we would be today? We would be in the Roman Catholic Church with that kind of teaching. There had to be somebody, some group of people, desire to reform the, um, where the church was at, where it uh, had been and where it was um, certainly going the wrong way. Uh, the, so the question would be then, well, why... Do we have to look at confessions and creeds? What's so big about that? Uh, why is it needed? Uh, and there are people that will say there is no need for creeds. 
I have no needs for creeds. And these are people that would profess to be Christians. But every church has creeds, whether they have them written or not, because they exist because they had some kind of belief in something or something that was different and they broke away from another church, whatever. They have beliefs, but they don't want to write them down. Uh, and really that is the key. It's, uh, it's not taking away from the Word of God. Uh, matter of fact, what it does, we know the Word of God is our only rule of faith. The, the um, creeds and confessions are not that. It's, it's the whole Word of God is what it's about. But it frames the Word uh, in, and it shows what we teach in a, in a real quick uh, sense. And it's as far as authority is concerned, it doesn't take away from the authority of the Word of God. Um, it's not done in arrogance or it is not to change the Word of God, but what it does, it, it takes the duties of it and takes it to the church and even to, uh, to the world uh, in, in showing what we believe. Yeah, Barb. Weren't a lot of them written in, in response to heresies? Well, that's exactly one of the reasons why we have uh, these confessions and creeds because it is to strike up against the very nature of what heresies are. And uh, they can always come into the church and say, well, no, we believe this. It's, our, it's a constitution that says, well, here's what this says. It's a summary of the Bible teaching and it definitely is to protect the church. A uh, good thing. But a lot of people don't know anything about them and, and I, I know why. Uh, I grew up through a denomination that said uh, they didn't really need to have any creeds, but the thing is, they really did. They, they, they had many things that they believed in that uh, the rest of the body of Christ always has believed in. But it's written by the church, for the church, and also for the, the unbelieving world so that we can sum up, here's what I believe about this and what I believe about this. Um, so there are important doctrines for all to see. So it's the very thing that cults don't do. The cults want to hide some of the things that we don't know what they are. When they show up to your door on a Saturday morning, they're not going to tell you everything that they believe in. Some are uh, some very outlandish things. Uh, but they, they just want you to know up front what some of the little uh, little things are and so it wouldn't be striking and uh, so they get you in, in their grips. So the, you know the, chor- the, the church was forced to explain to governors and to leaders of the world uh, because of the exclusivity that, that Christianity is. The claims that we have are very exclusive. Of course, Jesus said that he's the only way. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Uh, that's pretty narrow, but Christ is narrow. Um, anyway, it, it's very good to teach new converts uh, those particular doctrines. and So it's very pur- purposeful and it, it summarizes what uh, God's words has to say about um, doctrines, uh, beliefs. And they're meant to be shared. We share these things with the church for centuries and centuries that go way back. It's uh, the, the historical church. It's always been here. The body of Christ. And it's dealing with unity. It, it brings the church together. And of course, you can think of the Apostles' Creed and many of the other creeds that were very early on. Um, but they express the unity. Here's what we believe. So Christianity was not invented last Tuesday, was it? Not a couple weeks ago, not a couple years ago. Yeah, look how historical it is and what it's been around. And so it's there to protect and to teach the pure doctrine of the church, to confess what is plain and true and sure in Scripture. 
And uh, so it's it's like a constitution, something there that that is that is held, and we can go right to that and say, yeah, but uh, this is what this says because this is what the Word of God says. It's a, the Word of God is a standard of faith. Uh, the confessions are subordinate to it. Uh, they do not have the authority, but the Word certainly does, and it's it's all about the Word. Um, I have a quick yeah. Go ahead. Quick question. Mm-hmm. One is pretty simple. Well, what's a heresy? And then number two, because I keep, every time I get into a talk with a Catholic, they always bring up, you know, Paul started the Catholic Church, and they like to run in, like, Catholic is the true faith. But I don't see how that's possible, and I don't see why they say that Paul started it all. I mean, me and Alan talked about it, but... Oh, yeah, Peter, I'm sorry. Peter, because he's the rock. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't see why they... They say that it was him who started the Catholic Church, and that whole thing is just—I don't understand that. Well, heresy would be a doctrinal error, something that would be seriously taken wrong and taught. You take a, a, a straight doctrine. What's that? Yeah, there are many heresies there, all, all throughout. And of course, Peter being the their first pope, as they say. But he didn't uh, start the church. Of course, Christ did. It is. It's the. He's the head of the church. He's. Uh, he's the very rock, the very foundation of it. Uh, of course, we see in Acts how the church started. Roman Catholic Church didn't even come around till centuries later. Uh, there were things that kind of led up to it, but it was um, you know many years after that you don't you don't see it uh, whatsoever in Scripture. And of course, uh, it just started out of what the church was, but heresies came in to play, and you have one piled upon another as the years go on, and then the Word of God becomes less and less. And once the Word of God is, and that's why this is first. This is where this all starts. If we have that right, then other things will fall into place. Uh, but whenever they hide the Word of God from people, uh, and then uh, it's not taken as the authority, then all the other teachings come come in. And that's why a, a confession is so important. Uh, here's, here's what we believe. Now if you take this back, and just a little bit of history, I don't want to bore you guys, but at the same time, church history is, is very valuable to us. Um, let me know if you get lost, you have a question. <laughs> And I'm going to cover it real quick, and before we get into the actually dealing with the 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 scripture, the first one we're going to cover on the confession, you have the Reformation. That of course it had already been kind of started. Even I call them pre-Reformation days, but it's known whenever Luther, um, of course, he um, uh, would be the one known for getting it started. But there were others that came into play in that too. But in Germany is like at the heart of where this really started gaining speed. And then it, it spread over Europe. And of course, um, we speak English here. America is related to England. It's, it's uh, kind of interesting to see where uh, Europe's history and especially England's history came in on this because the Reformation spread to England too, uh, as well as it went all over the place. By the time you have uh, in the early time of the Reformation in the mid-1500s, it's spreading. You have a historical period um, where um, England and, of course, later on you have Scotland, and they were kind of divided. 
you've heard of King Henry, King Henry VIII. And of course, he wanted to be uh, kind of like the supreme head of the church. Uh, and he was trying to get away from the Pope because the Pope wouldn't give him permission to divorce. And of course, you might know some of that story. But uh, anyway, the king's divine right, uh, his supposed right over the church. And of course, that traces all to all the corruption that was already coming in. And, and of course, the Reformation was happening at this time. So England didn't receive an ecclesiastical Pope like Rome had, and then they uh, wind up having their Church of England, which is basically the same theology, only in England, and, but they don't have a Pope. They divided from him. But they had a royal one, and here is where King Henry comes into place. Uh, in 1538, this is key. Now, this is during those Reformation years. And of course, you have Luther, then Zwingli, and of course, Calvin. The English translation was published in 1538. That is important. That is key to us because we all have English translations here. And uh, that, this is wonderful. Um, matter of fact, at that time, as far as England and the church was concerned, there was an injunction that said that was given to the church that the churches were to have copies uh, of the Bible to read and for the public to read. Of course, most people didn't know how to read at that time because there definitely had been the, the Dark Ages. But um, you remember Tyndale, and he wanted to get the Bible into everyone's hands. And of course, like uh, many other ones have been like, and they said like even into the plowboy's hand, right? Well, the death of Tyndale, shortly after that, Tyndale, we know, was persecuted. He, he was what? He was martyred. But he prayed that the, the king's eyes would be opened and that the Word of God would be available to everyone that, uh, that lived. <laughs> Wanted the Bible into their hands. So this allowed the English Bible to sweep across all the land in its original language. That's key to us. Even though this sounds like some history, I hope it's not boring, because it tells us we got this Bible because people died for it. And it came to our language so that we can understand it. You don't have to even learn Hebrew and Greek. Um, after Henry, there was a guy by the name of Cranmer, and that time he was an enemy against the church as it was reforming. There was Edward VI, and they began persecuting the Protestants and the Reformation of the church. Queen Mary came along. She reconstituted the Roman Catholicism in the 1550s. And so that Reformation that was trying to happen in England was having difficulty. Mary died, and you had uh, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, and she wanted the one mother church of England to prevail. She was against uh, the Reformed um, theologians that were coming up and uh, they're teaching the Bible. She wanted one common prayer book, the common book of prayer. And the Act of Uniformity happened. And the Act of Uniformity is going to go against the ones who are going to come into play hugely in the Reformation. That's the Puritans, the English Puritans. Uh, they were persecuted because they were nonconformist. They were educated and they preached in what was the only church. But now they were teaching the Bible. And they were not into the, um, the, the act of uniformity, the common book of prayer. They wanted to be 
pure of those things and all the things that were in the Catholic Church, the statues and all that. So they were ejected from the pulpits and they had nowhere else to go but to meet in separate congregations away from the church. And of course you think of John Bunyan being one of those among many there. And so Queen Elizabeth found out what they were doing. She commanded commissioners to take measure against them. And uh, so Puritans were pressured to conform or when they were refused, their license were stripped from them. And uh, they were not going to be able to reconcile uh, the, the mother church and the Puritan belief. And so they anywhere were silenced, they were imprisoned, they were banished. But Puritanism kept growing. And as they were persecuted, they started maturing. And just before the death of Queen Elizabeth, uh, many Puritan ministers had tracts, had pamphlets, they had books on true Christianity and uh, how they opposed the Church of England, Roman Catholic Church. So at this point, they became known as doctrinal Puritans. Elizabeth died and King James I took over, took the throne in 1625. So the Reformation has had difficulties from the very outset, from the 1500s. We do have the English Bible already placed in. There are Puritans who are are teaching the Bible. What we believe in here is what the Puritans were teaching. That's what they were preaching. Matter of fact, they were much stronger than us. But um, they they had great writings that uh, we've been gifted with. Anyway, by 1643, there were so many um, groups of the people in England. Ireland and Scotland then wanted to get back in conjunction with England and have a civil and religious um, good there, uh, kind of a civil league. And this is where the Westminster Confession took place as they all came together. And it was twofold, basically, uh, that this church that was growing, that it would become somewhat organized, and then that there would be government and discipline. A civil authority would have to have efficiency in this. They'd have to have some backup with that. Anyway, 1647, the Westminster Assembly uh, came to um, fruition with, with their writings as it started in 1643. Uh, and you might wonder, who were they made up of? Well, they had 121 ministers that were invited there. That's a lot. 121 ministers. They had 10 members of the House of Lords. They had uh, 20 members of the House of Commons. And then they had 8 of the guys that came from Scotland. And that made up these guys that came up with this uh, most famous Westminster Confession, which uh, is so dominant today. And on their theological matters... Every one of them believed in favor of a strong Calvinistic position. Every one in that uh, uh, that we're dealing with this, because they saw the heirs of Arminianism, and of course that definitely had been uh, a big play in the very early 1600s, where there was Jacobus Arminius, and then later after he died, it was they took up the uh, role of trying to conquer what was Reformed theology, uh, dealing with salvation and and life and principles for that matter. Anyway, it was the heirs of Arminianism, Roman Catholicism, the sectarianism, and that's what they were uh, really trying to compete against. The the, the Quakerism, yeah. 
Right, because Quakers, they go to church to worship and all they do is they show up there and they just sit. They, you know, they don't have the Word of God preached. That's not the central focus. You just concentrate on God. Well, any kind of thoughts can come in your mind if you don't have the renewing of the mind through the Word of God. And uh, yeah, that. Uh, matter of fact, there's an there's another uh, Eastern Orthodox. They show up in a building, and uh, I was talking to Ed. Ed went to an Eastern Orthodox church. Uh, was that up in Michigan? And just to see what they did, they come in and they just kind of stand around, walk around. They don't have scripture preached, right? Uh, uh, I don't know if they read from the Bible. They might have a reading, but it's not yeah. anything organized, and they'll have priests go through yeah. with their. Uh, uh, Smoke was a big thing. Yeah. The incense. But the Word of God was not what it was about. You can see what everything is all about here. And that's what it was to them in the Reformation. The ambiance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did they get the name of the Westminster Divine? The, well, the divines are the guys that are are putting this together. Uh, they they were the like the leaders. Uh, it was the the ones who came from the House of Commons and uh, the, the 121 ministers. Westminster them. is at, uh, uh, the Westminster um, Abbey. Uh, Abbey. Yeah, I yeah. knew that. But it was more the divines part. I'm wondering. Oh, that sounds like yeah. Them. When I first heard it, I go, oh my, yeah, you know, that sounds like gods or something, you know. <laughs> But at that time, and what that word meant, were the ones who um, were writing this, putting this together, really. I think anyone that, that writes, as I understand it back then, anyone who wrote Christian theology was considered a Be called divine. a divine, right? Yeah. Anybody that was educated. And, and, and that was... Education, you could write and read. And so they were the... That was the guys. And that was the uncommon for most people to read at that time. Of course, God and His timing is going to have something that comes along all about the same time and the printing press and everything, and it just explodes. And within a few short years, of course, you have the Age of Enlightenment, which is good but also bad because man, rather than going to the Word of God, or takes the Word and then distorts it, and we've talked about that. But, uh, so this is, this is kind of like a... I think you said earlier, it's kind of like a constitution... Yeah. Kind of how they they came together for the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Um, it seems like that's kind of what you're saying happened here. Yeah, it's a it's a foundational basis, and of course they they start off with with Scripture, mm-hmm. and uh, then they'll go on to, to to show who God is, and right on all the way to to the last things. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't just come together with a good idea. They had to they look through the scriptures. Oh, they studied the they studied the, the scriptures, Greek and Hebrew. Have I lost anybody yet? No. Are, are are we hanging on okay? Would you start over, please? Yeah. This this Westminster Confession is the most influential in the English speaking world uh, that there is. And by the way, uh, it's not only famous in just British Presbyterian bodies, but also American Presbyterian bodies. But let's go ahead and spread it out because the Congregationalists also took 
almost everything from the Westminster Confession, made a few changes. The Baptists who came along, they were in the 1600s. They took the Westminster Confession. It's, it's, it's the very basis of all the other confessions that are known. The Baptists had uh, their confession uh, uh, written almost word for word, very close to it. When it came over to America, you had the Philadelphia Confession that, that was made, that was put in a, uh, a way for Americans. And it's still not much difference. That was the Baptist had that, and also in Charleston, which was down in uh, the South, and and so the North and the South they came together. And they basically had the same thing. It's the Westminster Confession. Later on, it was uh, a 1689 Confession in London. There was the second one done, and all those are adapted. Basically, the same thing. B.B. Uh, Warfield, who was one of my great favorite theologians out of uh, Princeton said that the opening that's dealing with Scripture was uh, the best single chapter in any Protestant confession. The best uh, chapter uh, on uh, of any part uh, of any of the confession. Uh, Reformed doctrine, it speaks of predestination. It's all over the confession. Uh, God's will being ultimate, reprobation, human freedom, uh, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, assurance of salvation, the law of God. All of these are found. The visible church, the invisible church. Um, it's a summary, very sure-footed of, of Christian truth. Uh, very opening pages about the God's revelation of Himself, the fullness and the clarity of the Scriptures and the 66 books. And it has a lot of uh, sayings like, God has ordained or ordered whatsoever comes to pass. It's settled from all eternity. Um, from the beginning, God's plan or counsel for the ordering of all things is most wise and holy. Uh, some of that terminology we're familiar with. He directs, disposes, and governs His creation. Uh, all of His creatures, all their actions, are He has governing authority over. And so none of those are of any surprise when these guys come from the Calvinistic uh, Luther uh, perspective uh, as far as salvation is concerned. And so you take the confession of faith, you can take it with broad, bold strokes of the, what the whole Bible is about. It's the history of our redemption, realities of the fall, uh, God's gracious covenants with, uh, with man, the announcement of salvation, the sure hope that we have of eternal life. Uh, these are considered just strokes. And so that's the idea. Anyway, uh, do you guys have your outlines? Did I, did I have enough out there? Um, we'll, we'll get right into that. And and we'll look, what we're going to do is we're going to try to look up some of the scriptures that go along with these. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have it to put up. I had the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I also had our our brand new uh, Colonial Congregational Confession, and uh, I was going to use that where we can all read it. Sorry about that. I came here last night, worked at it a half an hour, and got it up. And I said, "Aha! Now I've got it," and I come here and can't get it. So. Zach can always figure it out, and uh, oh, if he wasn't working, I'd make him be here. Um, the learning objective here, we can say it's definitely one of the greatest creeds in Reformed tradition. It's honored, it's used more extensively than any other creed or creeds combined. It was prepared 100 years, about 100 years, after the death of Martin Luther. So that if that can give you in, in uh, some idea when this was happening, 
Why is this so important? Well, what you believe today, you owe to these people who put all of these things together. Starting with what the Reformation was. Uh, we, of course, God gets all the glory. And that's what I say. To God, glory alone, right? Uh, what it is, the Westminster Confession is Reformed doctrine that Luther had, that Zwingli had, that Calvin had, that Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer later had. He converted over, finally. Uh, John Knox, Bucer, and then going all through the Puritans, going all through uh, the American Puritans, you think of Jonathan Edwards, all the way up through the time of uh, Spurgeon and B.B. Um, Warfield, Charles Hodge, through the 1900s, uh, you can think of Martin Lloyd-Jones and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Alistair Begg, um, you know, go on and on, right? I mean, uh, what's that? Stephen Lawson, there we go. So, uh, and they all hold to this. And you say, well, it's not that strange then, is it? No. And if it is strange, it's good to get informed about this because it's like, where have we been? Well, the modern church today says, we don't need any creeds. <laughs> and that's why it's kind of gotten lost in the, in the Baptist, although they do. They, they have a, a, a statement of faith. Um, uh, only in the Reformed churches, uh, Reformed Baptist. Uh, they will use that or they will use the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Uh, they have a, one called a Statement of Faith. Um, but they, they wouldn't have this. But that, that Originally, that's what they had. Southern Baptist Convention was based upon the Philadelphia... Con, uh, actually, the Charleston Confession. Yeah, the Southern Baptist did. Well, it was all through. Uh, it was, of course, you had people like Manley uh, and some others in the 1800s that started the seminaries, mid 1800s, uh, and of course they used that. And it was somewhere shortly in the early 1900s where the Word of God, even in the Presbyterian rank. Uh, became less and less. It wasn't inspired. It wasn't every word of God uh, that was inspired. You see what the problem is? And so all of a sudden the confessions and the creeds go out and they, of course they write their own, adapt it, and they start taking out things that would offend people such as predestination, which is biblical, which is in uh, quite much in the Bible all throughout the Bible. Uh, but they start taking those things out and water it down. And uh, another hundred years later, you have what you have in our country and in the rest of the world today. That's why we say it's good to go back and look at history and see what happens because history is always known to water things down. In education today, you go into a, a regular classroom, uh, the best history you're probably going to get is something about Marilyn Monroe. Uh, you're not going to get a lot about American history and real facts. And, uh, yeah, black, black Lives Matter, you might get that now, which he was forced to, uh, to take in, in class. <laughs> Just recently. Okay. Um, on your outlines, you got first part. It was written to unite England, Scotland, Ireland, doctrinally. Um, just covering that quickly, we talked about it. There are a few changes that have happened uh, since the 1600s, but uh, not much of any 
thing that would be uh, considered to be major. Uh, remember, it's completed in 1647. Uh, we're talking what? How many years is that? Uh, 350-some-odd uh, years or whatever, right? Going on, going on 400 years? Uh, anyway, uh, it's very faithful to the Scriptures. Very faithful uh, all the way from the beginning of Scripture to the last things. It's comprehensive. It's detailed. Let's go to chapter 1 of it. And uh, this is considered to be of the Holy Scriptures. This is the most significant in all of the confession. And what I have to do here, rather than reading from the screen, is try to read my small phone and hope I can find it here real quick. Here we go. Now, and I might cover this because uh, of lack of time. Uh, Zach Whitson put in his, he started of first things before, before the Scripture. And it starts off with God is the first being, the first cause of all things, and the first in functions. Now that's basic, simple. We all know that, right? But, but that, of course, before you to do anything, God is what it's all about, right? So anyway, he has several things written on there. For God, there is no beginning and uh, or no end, and out of nothing created everything. Through God comes creation, providence, government, grace, love, justice, and wrath. Since God is first, He should be the first in our heart, spirit, and mind. By and through creation, it is plain that there is a divine God in our worship, and it is communicated enough about God and His nature to know that He exists, He is sovereign, and He is the Creator Judge. Now, we could spend time on that and get the depth of that. But we'll go into what would uh, be where most of your uh, your confessions start of the Holy Scriptures. There are actually ten points to this. It's not that long. Um, I can briefly... We've read some of these. Matter of fact, probably I've read all of these in our worship. When we do the, the confession of faith, instead of doing uh, the Apostles' Creed over and over every week, saying the same thing one and, and never really learning anything, that's all some churches ever do. But why not take the confessions and use them? There's so much to, of teaching there. People can say things by rote, have it memorized, but not even know what it means. But um, the teaching here... Um, the very first one is this. Uh, and like I say, I'm sorry I don't have anything to hand out on this. I uh, was counting on that. But here we go. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge. Faith and obedience, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will to which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse, diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare His will unto His church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world to commit the same holy unto writing which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now completed. 
under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. And it gives us 66 books. What are we saying there? He's saying, okay, how many, how many different ways does God reveal Himself? Two. What's the first one that He mentions? Nature. By nature. Right? You go out and you look at creation. You can see that there has been a Creator. Romans 1 says that all know that. They have been revealed by God to them that there is a God. They just suppress the truth. Right? And that's nature. But nature alone cannot save you. And that's really what this first statement is really uh, summing up. Uh, this is foundational right here. The Word of God. What we just read, you can say, so what? We all believe that. We believe that the Word of God. We believe that it's inerrant. It's complete. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It's effective. It's determined for salvation. We all believe that, don't we? So why do we have to study that? Well, how much of the church believes that? Well, if you go by some of the surveys that has been done, uh, 50% in the evangelical, and I'm saying evangelical churches of our day, not Catholic churches, evangelical, do not believe the Word of God is inerrant and complete and authoritative and sufficient. You had it right I just said 50 As a matter of fact, it, I might be very nice with that. It might be 60%. said sermons, by the way. You were right on that. How many sermons contain Oh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also those who say that they believe it's sufficient, uh, it's still left to, to be proved whether they practice it in theory or not. Yeah, it's one thing to say, say it. it. Right, you can acknowledge the scripture is sufficient, and then yeah. if every, every one of your sermons is about your personal opinion, yeah. then you don't believe it's sufficient. Exactly. You don't understand what you say you believe. Exactly. Yeah. The canon of Scripture actually determined in relation to the Reformation. King James? Is that, is that what you said? The canon of, of Holy Scripture. When was that determined? You mean back in history? Yeah. Of course, it, it was already formed, of course, probably by the end of the first century. But as time went on, of course, the letters were, were put about. Everybody had, I mean, it was accessible as it went to the different churches and grew in that. Of course, you had people copying these down. Uh, they, they didn't have any trouble with the Old Testament because the Jews had already accepted all of those books. The Apocrypha was, was not even part of it at that time. Uh, and then as the New Testament church grew, um, I think there was, there's like a, to keep it short here, there's a consensus here finally where these books are. And of course, any books that had any kind of errors in them were not included. They put all those were written by, uh, like Apostle Paul, for instance. And, uh, you know, um, of course, like Peter as an apostle. Or if they happened to be men that were underneath them, they would check them out. Uh, so you had the councils. You would have uh, scholars. You would have the, the early divines <laughs> that would come together. And of course, some of these would be writers. You had the early church fathers. But it was uh, done very early. Um, I don't know if I have a right date, but I think uh, you know, second century, third century, you're already getting that. You've already had that together. By the time you get in the, the third, fourth century, it's 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 put together. Okay, but it wasn't well known until well, like till the advent of the printing press, just like the Bible, right? 
Well, the, by the by the time you had uh, what is, of course, you get Augustine. He he had what the Bible was. He had everything. He by his time that was already there. Uh, you could take the scrolls, and of course that was accepted. When in relation to when this was written, it was because this lists what the sixty. Yeah, well, the Roman Catholic Church had that. Uh, as time went on, they uh, then added the Apocrypha, the the extra books, and they didn't even have it at first, you know. But then that was added, and it's in the sixteen uh, uh, eleven King James at first. Although these guys make it very clear that the Apocrypha is not the Word of God. Matter of fact, in the very next statement, that's what it says. Uh, which books are, and they 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 have them written down. They put down the sixty six books are the rule for faith. That's why I was wondering how soon before this was written that canon of scripture was formalized. From yeah, well, they all yeah they they certainly had it all there. Yeah. Um, what's that? Right there, and I think that's. Yeah, that actually had fifty Bibles made when his mother Helen decided to try to make Christianity a legal religion, and he had fifty Bibles made, and he brought in people, and I can't remember the name of the council, but because um, Trent was when they actually is when the um, Catholics actually added the apocrypha books that they added. And that was in the 1500s, yeah. and that was considered the yeah. the Counter Reformation. But, um, they shot back at them, and that's when yeah. they put their. Score. I think it was like 374 or something. Okay. Right, but I, and you'd have to look up what it was called. I want to say Nicaea. It's definitely in that era. Right now, honestly. Yeah, um, but it it definitely was not a mystery to people. It was it was definitely uh, all there, and people had access to it. And they, of course, they were making many copies at that time. Uh, we have some manuscripts or uh, or partial pages that are found that go all the way back to the very second century, uh, written by John. Um, you know, so that's going way back. But it's, so it was the circular letters, and it went from church to church. Anyway, if you want to look at uh, Scripture here, I think if, we, if you want to talk natural revelation, you look at um, Romans 1, 19. And of course, these would be the Scriptures. matter of fact, if you look in some of the good um, confessions of faith, they will have the Scripture right there uh, in that paragraph of the statement dealing with Scripture or whatever all the way through. Uh, Zach had his at the back of his confession right now. I might try to talk him into putting him up there forward to it. <laughs> a little easier to get to, but uh, Romans 1, 19-21. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. It became futile in their own mind. And that's the downfall of what man does. But He revealed Himself through nature. And the second way is through the Word of God. And that's how man 
comes to know really who God is. That's how man becomes saved. It's, it's not through natural revelation. They see the beauty of creation and, and become saved. It is through uh, the Word of God. I think of Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3, where again, you have natural revelation there. And it's a good thing. I mean, God uh, definitely uses that. Shows that He shows to every man that there's a God. How can they miss it? One through three, very familiar. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone to anyway. This is the creation of God, isn't it? It's shouting forth. But then in verse 7, it changes. You get natural revelation in the first six verses, and then boom, verse 7, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Perfect. And what does it do? It restores the soul. That's salvation. And then he built on up. The testimony of the Lord, these are all words for the Word of God. What is it? It's sure. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are what? Right. What do they do? Rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord, all this is the Word of God, isn't it? Is pure, right? And what does it do? Enlightens the eyes. And so all the way on through there, it's all about the Word of God. First, natural revelation, and then specific revelation. And so if anybody ever asks you, well, how has God revealed Himself to us? So you can give them the two. Because yeah, they're right there in Psalm 19. What terms did Natural revelation, specific revelation. General. Well, general revelation would be considered, what would you say that as? As natural revelation. Just general revelation. Yeah, right. There's different names for it. Okay. And I like to say that Oh, absolutely. And of course, how do you see Jesus? Through the Word of God. And, and, and you're right on. You're right on. Hebrews, Hebrews 1 um, says that very succinctly. God, after He spoke long ago to the, and the prophets in many portions, many ways, God used to use dreams and visions and all sorts of different outward ways in, in ways that He didn't, angels and such. But He says, in these last days has spoken... And see, that's the key thing. Spoken. He spoke to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And God created the world through Jesus Christ, didn't He? So, yeah, we, we learned those all through there. Uh, in Romans 15.4, it talks about the written Word of God. There's a lot, of, so many passages to go through. Uh, Romans 15.4 For whatever was written in earlier times, when would that have been? Old Testament, right? Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Written. Scriptures. Scriptures is, is grama. Writings. Scriptures. And so he... Written. Something written down. So it's not something subjective. People want to say, I have God and I know Him my way. 
people can say, I have a burning in my bosom. <laughs> they have all sorts of subjective things. That's what the, the, what the Mormons say, right? No. Anybody can say anything out of their subjective feelings and emotions. God just makes me feel warm and bubbly all over. But the Word of God is objective truth that is written, that is evidential, that you can you can read it, you can see it. Uh, it's right there. Look, and I like this one. You don't, usually don't think of this. Proverbs twenty two nineteen. Proverbs twenty two nineteen through twenty one. This is really good. So that your trust may be in the Lord, I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, wisdom, knowledge, to make you know the certainty of the words of truth? Proverbs 22. Mm-hmm. That you may correctly answer him who sent you. So there, it's trusting in what he has given us, what he's written to us about his wisdom, his knowledge, who he is, the words of truth. I like that. I I hadn't really uh, thought of that passage. Usually, you know, you can think of all the First uh, Timothy three fifteen through seventeen. That's one of the classics. I was even going to start with that. Uh, does somebody have that handy real quick? It's it's the, the scripture dealing with all scripture is inspired, fifteen through seventeen. It's where uh, Paul is writing to to Timothy. Anybody have it? Uh, second Timothy three fifteen through seventeen. I might have said first Timothy. Did I, did I say second or first? Going through a lot of scripture tonight, and my wrist is getting tired. Sorry about that. No. <laughs> Do you have it, Alan? Yeah. Uh, it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There we go. That's a classic, isn't it? Memorize that one, right? There's also one in uh, God breathed in Matthew Matthew twenty two thirty one. This is Jesus speaking, and he said, uh, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And so there's this play between, Have you not read what God spoke? Yeah. Exactly. And and of course, the. uh, I was trying to think of the. The uh, rich, uh, the rich man, uh, and Lazarus, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, like you know, they. I'm trying to think where that's at. Luke 16. Luke 16. Ah, uh, can you can you read that for us? Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought you had it memorized. No. <laughs> um, we know we know that story anyway. If you get down into 16 verse one. Uh, Actually, it, it, you know, well, you guys know the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, mm-hmm. right? I, I hate to skip over that, but when it comes down to it, when you jump to, um, go to verse twenty-seven. 
So then he said to them, I, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He says, Okay, you know, there are other ones. Go warn them before they wind up in the place where I'm at. Here's the answer. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Now Moses is the what? The law. The prophets. That's the whole writing at that time of the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And we hear the same stories today. People have these stories where they go to hell and they come out of it and they come back and they're going to save people. But the thing is, here's what the answer is to this. He says, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent because I've been there and now they'll really see that and they'll repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, the Bible, the Scriptures, then they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And guess who rose from the dead later on? Jesus Himself. And they still didn't believe that, did they? I was about to say that it almost seemed like uh, He was like, send somebody back from the dead. It's like I was thinking about Christ automatically there and you know how He was sent back and they still rejected Him. Exactly. Very good. Very good. Yeah. This is kind of sidetracking. Whenever I read that, was the rich man still able to pray where wherever he was at that moment? It, I mean, it looks like he's able to pray, even though... Yeah, like he said, define praying. Are you just are you saying as he's talking to, uh, to him in this parable? Um, um, two, I don't know if this is really. I always took this as real people, a real incident that happened. But, but I've also heard that no, it's just a parable. Yeah, I tend to take it a little bit more than just a parable. Honestly, uh, it, it certainly could be because there's there's a guy named here Lazarus, and this is not the Lazarus that we think of. But uh, what's happening there is the poor man died, was carried away to angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes. There was a chasm there, and of course Hades is a holding place, uh, which uh, eventually is known as uh, you know the. All right, Audrey. (laughs) But anyway, uh, you know, uh, he's able, and and somehow in this story, he's able to see Abraham and you know, and Lazarus in his bosom. And of course, he he wants a little mercy. He wants a dip of that water. And of course, we know hell. uh, There's definitely fire involved in it and such. Uh, there's a lot of literalness here, you know, and so. When you say there's no water there, can I think of Christ being the the water of, you know, the eternal water, the living water, and how that's not in hell? There's no living water in hell. Christ is not in hell. I mean, right. He has dominion over and everything in it because He's created to God, you know. And uh, but He is not there, so that hope is not there. But I just find it interesting that, you 
the water is not there, that's what they want. <laughs> they want a little bit of that water, which they no longer can receive. And the thing is, and of course, his his relations there, uh, they too, they they weren't believing in the Word of God, and that's how important it is, you know. And and uh, it, it that's you know he's talking about the whole counsel of God that was uh, available at that time. So you know the written Word of God, it was there. Um, people had access to it, and um, well, we're running out of time here, but. Um, Oh no, that's okay. That's all right. We. Um, speaking on on the apocryphal books, uh, they have no authority in the church whatsoever. Uh, they're not inspired. They were not part of the canon. They they were written four hundred in the space of four hundred years before the time of Christ. It was four hundred years where God stopped revealing Himself. The Old Testament was finished. It was completed. When the New Testament is was completed by ninety some odd A.D. ninety five whatever in the Book of Revelation, the whole Bible then was completed. Um, there is no need for new written revelation. We have it all in the Word of God, uh, and I'm glad that we don't have to go out hunting to see other things. That's where we have it all. Everything is here. As much as He has ever revealed, we have in our hands. Take note of that. That's incredible. We have more revelation than all the Old Testament saints had. And of course, we have, we have books that sum it up and commentaries and language helps and everything for us to even get better understanding. And we are probably uh, maybe one of the most ignorant groups in the body of Christ that's ever been known of the Word of God. Uh, and uh, so anyway, the, uh, the Scriptures, the oracles are so key. B.B. Um, Warfield, as far as on the canon of Scripture, he said this. He said, uh, according to Protestantism, which holds to the confession, the canon is a collection of inspired books. And he says this, there's one priest that said once that if the church had taught him that Aesop's fables was inspired and the book of Matthew was not inspired, which one do you think he would pick? He said Aesop's fable. If the church says that's what's inspired and Matthew is not inspired, then I'm going to take Aesop's fables. And that is basically what the Roman Catholic Church would... uh, I'm not saying they've adapted Aesop's fables, but they do what the church says. The church is what has the authority, and it's the head over the church, the church magisterium, the pope, and the what follows after that makes their decisions. People listen to them. The pope is the holy father. Right, infallible. When he sits when ex cathedra from the chair, he is infallible. But the Word of God is the only infallible, inerrant thing that we know of. And a man claiming that is uh, heretical. <laughs> Huge. Yeah. The apocrypha reliable as history. A lot of of good history can be found. Uh, The first, second Maccabees, a lot to be gained from that. Uh, There are other books that are helpful uh, history-wise. They're just not inspired. You read it, you can just just tell it, just even by reading it. Uh, It is no match at all for Scripture. But uh, most of them are going to have some kind of errors uh, in them. Uh, Some of them are not helpful at all. 
Um, and of course, uh, Audrey uh, mentioned, um, uh, what would you mention a while ago? Purgatory. And of course, that is where most of their doctrine of purgatory is found and written in a, And that's right out of Maccabees, even. Yeah. And that's why those books were never put into uh, the canon. Uh, in the Old Testament. Yeah, and actually, uh, it was Jerome that put them in there. And he he made a clear note, this is in his translation to the Latin, he made a clear note saying these books are not inspired. It's kind of like, you know, let's say Pilgrim's Progress, that okay. has, it has blessed a lot of Christians throughout the ages. So he's like, hey, I'm just, I'm just going to add this one here, because I'm making a, a Latin translation. Mm -hmm. And That's just, good. you know, throwing this one in for free. I'm just but people in the eventually, yeah. or the Catholic Church, yeah. eventually right. was like, oh no, this is scripture. Very uh, good. No. Uh, matter of fact, he that was Jerome, and he wrote the Vulgate. Uh, you know, you think of the Vulgar or common language. Jerome was helpful in that sense, but by that time, the Roman Catholic Church had really been starting to develop, but he had some yeah. things that uh, lent to, to the church to, to some degree. Yeah. But, but that's he, interesting but that he, he would say that. included a note saying, this is not scripture. So he himself, and who would the Catholics look to who gave them their Vulgate? Jerome. Right. I mean, he's held in high esteem. And what does he say? So that's why I say, you know, when you have a, some kind of a foundational truth and people get away from that, that's he's one of their founders. I wonder if they were like... He didn't mean that. <laughs> that wasn't inspired. Yeah, we right. but, but that's exactly the point. Is they don't, they they cannot, and they do not hold this, the things of the scriptures as holy, and that's why they can bring those other things in there and be just fine with it. These are good things too to remember. It's kind of where they go with it. Yeah, they lose the effect of what scripture is really about. Very good. One last item, and I'll, I'll try to make this short. Um, and I hope this. I hope you've been able to kind of follow along with this because we all know, and every one of us that I know of here believes in the Word of God. True, we're not trying to convince ourselves of that. But when we look back at history, see what the Bible says about itself. Some of those verses that we read, we go, those are very helpful. And then the comments that come in, we can use that to use it not only for ourselves, assurance, but how about um, being able to use in apologetics. You definitely need, and I look at Ed back there, and he uses apologetics. Of course, he believes in the, the sovereignty of God working in that. But you've been able to use that so many times, people doubt the Word of God. And uh, Ed loves to talk to, to unbelievers or, or atheists. And uh, that's one of your... That's one of your one of your callings is is that I you know I, I get a lot off of you when it, where, whenever I hear of your the encouragement. <laughs> anyway, be praying for uh, Ed and Karen. I announced this because they're kind of considering maybe looking at some uh, possibilities of maybe moving down here. Uh, I'm just saying, just put it in prayer for them. Uh, mine will be swayed very heavily one way. But, uh, and I know Johnny and Frida sure would too. Uh, I will tell you what an addition you guys would be to our church. So uh, whatever, whatever you think. But anyway, okay. <laughs> He's looking for a job. Okay, um, I close this out. The Word of God and the Spirit of God, and I couldn't leave without without mentioning something about the Spirit of God. Uh, 
there, I think, in their fifth paragraph, and that's as far as we've gotten. There are like ten paragraphs on the Scripture. There's abundant evidence for the inspiration of Scriptures. And we've looked at many of those verses and we could have looked at many more. But the assurance does not come just from reading that in itself, but it comes from the inner working of the Holy Spirit. And there is compelling evidence all throughout Scripture. Compelling evidence of the Bible, the 66 books and such. But there's a difference between proof and persuasion. We can be proven to, but to be persuaded is the Holy Spirit's job. And this is what the Westminster Confession makes sure to hit. There's overwhelming evidence, but there is a persuasion that no man and and the Scripture in itself cannot do. It's the Spirit working along with the Word of God. We can build all the arguments that we want. But so when it's so compelling, why is it that people don't believe the Word of God? And the Westminster doesn't answer it at this time. It's when it goes into chapter 6 and 7 with the fall and the sinfulness of man is where that's answered. Because we can't understand evidence until we know that we are sinners against a holy God and we repent. So, uh, sinners cannot, cannot understand what the spiritual aspect of the Word of God is. They might be able to quote and be able to point to some things, but really they don't like the light. They're hostile to the truth. Um, The more evidence, the more hostile they become. I, I, I have to close with this. I don't know how many times I've used this, but in 1 Corinthians 2, Verses 10 through 12. It uh, it talks of the Holy Spirit here. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. It's the very word of God that was written. It's revealed how by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? How can we even our, in our own selves know that? How can other people know? We It takes us to know that, right? But even so the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. How can we know the thoughts of God? By reading the Word? Well, yeah. But with the Spirit of God who... Searches all things. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Foolishness to Him, right? So the Word of God and the Spirit of God, that's the only way that we can understand uh, this precious truth, the Spirit of God. And then in 1 John 2, verse 20, and then we're going to we're gonna have to cut. I've gone well over time, but... Um, verse 20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And then verse 27, Verse 27, 
As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it's taught you, you abide in Him. So it's, it's the very Spirit of God which teaches us the Word of God. And this, these are some of the things that the Westminster Confession teaches. I think, wouldn't it be nice if the church as a whole went back and would believe in the inspiration of the Scripture and that every word is inspired? And your translation was right on when you said, all Scripture is God-breathed. Because that's exactly what it is. It's God-breathing. It is uh, dealing with pneuma. That's you know, uh, uh, spirit breathed. He he conveys who he is by putting it upon different writers, Apostle Paul, for instance, and they write down. It's not automatic writing, but he breathed out the very word of God, and we have them today. I think it's so. Uh, and, and that people can understand very clearly what is necessary to for uh, salvation and our daily living in our Christian manner. So those are things that they put forth. We believe it, but it isn't nice to know that there were a group of people who gave up their lives so that we could get the Word of God. And not only that, to be able to put it in your language, to be able to understand it, and then to be able to apply it to your own lives and then give it out to other people. What a precious treasure we have. Word of God is the definitely the best thing to start with after you start talking about God there and then you find out who God is through this. So anyway, in the next few weeks, we'll uh, be going through some of the many facets of uh, this great historical confession. I hope it's been maybe helpful to you. Maybe you've been introduced to it which you didn't know anything about it. Bart. I have a question on one of your questions at the bottom. Can you hang on to that? (laughs) (laughs) About three weeks ago. What what is it? Why is Scripture insufficient as a creed? Is Scripture insufficient for anything? Where, um, why do we have creeds? Why is Scripture insufficient? Oh, I think that there it's probably worded as um, are the the creeds are not Scripture. Is is that what we're talking about there? I just I just took this on your outline. You'll notice too. I had Gerstner because I took his outline for this and his lectures that he had. Um, it just seems that I should read why is a creed insufficient as Scripture. Why is Scripture insufficient as a... Oh, the Scripture, if it's just a creed, then it's going to be very short. These are put in a short form, the confessions are. Whereas the Word of God, the wholeness of it, the whole body of the Word of God... So, yeah, compared to the Word of God. Yeah, yeah, right. But it, it is... In itself, the Word of God, if that's all it was, would be insufficient. Just and to use the the, the creeds and say, I don't need to read the Scripture. I've got the I've got the Confession of Faith here. Well, it doesn't have everything in there. Uh, maybe that's what it means. I'm not for sure. 
let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening and thank You for Your Word which we have been uh, looking at tonight. And um, we want to hold true to Your Word and make it real in our own lives that we can honor You. And thank You for the historical church down through the ages who have been responsible for making the Word go out and making uh, other publications go out that help us understand it even more thoroughly and that we would uh, have the answers for not only the people in the church but also for the people outside the church so that they could come inside. We give You all glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, guys.